Well, good morning, everyone. I see that we're I'm kind of away from you here, so um, I'll try to speak up, make sure that we get to you. If you can't hear, raise your hand every once in a while and go, or go like this, and I'll try to lift my voice a little bit higher. But hopefully the voice will carry good enough, and we're off and running. Um, I want to thank Alec for the privilege of being able to uh, stand and fill in for him while he's away, ministering elsewhere. And um, I hope that we will, we're going to pray for him right now, that he'll be a blessing where he is, and then that God would speak to us as we open his word here. Okay, so let's, let's bow in prayer. Holy God, we are so thankful that we can meet together. Um, not because this building is glorious or because we ourselves are glorious, but because we meet in your name, in your presence, and you are glorious. We're so thankful we can do that. But there's many, many, many in our land who do not. Lord, we pray for Pastor Alec as he's ministering to a different flock, a different uh, location here in Lancaster County, that you would be with him today, be very present uh, in his words as he opens your word, help him be faithful to your word. And uh, would your spirit be active, Lord, as you uh, use the word of God in the lives of your people to accomplish its purpose, both there and here, we pray in Jesus' name. That is one thing I did want to ask. We didn't have any announcement about shutting off cell phones, so please do that. Put your volume down and shut off cell phones so we can uh, not be interrupted, all right? Sorry. Listen, um, I grew up in this area, and we moved back to the area here about uh, 15 years ago. But I, uh, we lived for a while in, in Orlando, Florida, where I went to graduate school and uh, ended up staying down there uh, for about 12 years. And the Orlando Sentinel records this incident that happened. This is after we left. This happened about uh, seven years ago this week. At the Summer Bay Resort near Disney World in Orlando, a 900-unit resort, a security officer, Richard Shanley, was making his rounds around 11 p.m. on a Sunday night when a guest alerted him to a ruckus near Building 104. Shanley said, I was under the impression that it may have been a domestic disturbance or something like that because of the way people were yelling, we have a problem here. But when I looked down the breezeway, I could actually see that the building was coming apart. About an hour later, one of the three structures that make up Building 104 would collapse into a 100-foot-wide sinkhole, along with parts of two other adjacent wings. Shanley, a former volunteer firefighter from suburban Kansas City, insisted that his instincts took over as he ran from building to building and floor to floor, and villa to villa, beating on doors and rousting snoozing vacationers while pieces of ceiling plaster rained down on him and windows began to crack and explode under the stresses. 
He literally said as he went from floor to floor that he felt that the floor would drop about a foot each time he went up to a different floor. Some people thought I was joking, he recalled. I told them, this is no joke. You've got to get out. I literally had to wake guests up in their rooms. They'd open the door and say, are we being evicted from the property? I told them, no, but you have to get out. This building is coming apart. Can you imagine? You're sleeping or about to go to sleep at a Walt Disney Resort. And suddenly you hear sounds, crackings, thuds. Things aren't right. And somebody comes around screaming, get out. Because this building is coming apart. And the pictures of that, literally that building in which the core building literally was from top to bottom underground within the hour. Sometimes our lives can seem like that. Um, in general, life is full of surprises. And then there are special events that come along that tell us that the foundations are shaky. Things aren't what they used to be. What I could depend on, I can't depend on. And so today, I want to talk to you about foundations. I uh, thank you for the songs, Patrick. I don't know if you got them before or after the text that we're speaking on, but very fitting with today's message. Psalm 87, and what caught my eye, I go through the Psalms regularly because that's a part of my daily encouragement. I find I can be totally down, totally um, almost depressed. You know, I can be very out of it, can be very confused, can be very overladen, and I can read a psalm. And so I read them regularly, and it will literally transform my spirit that day almost instantly. And so they've been a great help to me. But in Psalm 87, I came across that some time ago. And what struck me about this psalm is that its very first word is the word foundation. Uh, there are different translations for Psalm 87, verse 1, but it says that um, it says, His foundations, or His foundation is in the holy hills. There's different translations of that. You may have a text that talks about the city of God or um, something like that. The word city isn't in there. Uh, it's just three words that make up that first verse. Literally, his foundation in the hills of holiness. That's basically what it says. Okay? And so the different translations come about because in the next couple of verses, the word uh, the city of God is used and Zion is referenced as being the city of God. So sometimes the translators fill that in and talk about the city he founded or put it different ways. But I want to talk to you today about foundations, and mainly this, that in the middle of life's certainty and uncertainty and chaos, that we should be building our lives on the only true foundation that is, namely the foundation that God has established. Okay? And we'll look at what the essence of that foundation is in this psalm. Uh, the very first thing that we find here is a reference to the hills of Jerusalem. I should say, some of the translations also say holy mountain, singular. Some say in the holy mountains, plural, or in the hills, plural. Which is it? Hills or mountains? Is it hill or hills? Well, it is plural, but in the Hebrew it could be the different reasons why it might be plural. Okay? And so not to get too confused with that, but just he's referring to this region in Jerusalem this ridge of hills or small mountains 
that make up what we would think of as modern-day Jerusalem. And sometimes that word is interchangeably referenced as Zion, which is sometimes called the city of God. Those hills, by the way, and we'll get to these in a little bit in a second, but the hills is not just Mount Zion, but very close to it, Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount on which the Temple of God was built, um, and Mount Calvary. They're all right there on this ridge of hills in Jerusalem. Okay? The very first thing that I think I was struck by as I thought about that is that the God of the universe says that his foundation is in these holy hills. Really. When was the last time that you saw a picture of the universe, of the galaxies, like on that, that scale? It's been a while, but you've been like in some big screen theater or you've been in a science class or something, and you've seen the stars and the constellations, the galaxies that swim about. And literally, have you ever thought about how did, why is the Earth so special? That, the, that we would say that, that the Earth is actually the center of what God is doing. And the only explanation that we would say is that because God put his presence here and God's working out his plan. And it's the same thing for the hills of Jerusalem. Why would he choose the hills of Jerusalem? These humble hills, 2,500 feet high, just a, a, a very modest ridge in Jerusalem. Why did he choose the Himalayas? Why did he choose Mount Kilimanjaro? I mean, something, even the Appalachians are three to 6,000 feet high, and they're not even terribly grandiose. And, of course, the mountains in Colorado, 14,000, 15,000 feet. There are other mountains that if God wanted to choose mountains, he could have chosen a lot better mountains than these humble hills in Jerusalem. That's the whole point. That's the whole point, isn't it? These, these mountains become special not because the mountains in themselves are special, but because of the prerogative and the providence of God. He's put his presence here. He's worked out his salvation. The earth is special not because it's just, you know, really think about it, without God's existence, which is why the atheist should be confronted with this every day of his life. And that is, if there is no God, then you're just a piece of dust on a piece of dust in a cloud of dust in a cloud of dust in a cloud of dust. And that's it. But when there is a God, and he has purposed these things for his purposes, they suddenly take on meaning, and everything is dripping with meaning. And so I want to talk about the meaning that God, the foundation that God has and the first thing that I would say that makes up his foundation is the fact that God put his presence in the holy hills. So our lives should be built on the foundation of God's presence. Our lives are insignificant in themselves. We are insignificant in ourselves. But with God being made in his image, being redeemed by him, we are suddenly extremely significant and of value by the God of the universe. And the second thing is that these hills then are not just remaining hills, humble hills, but that they are changed and that they are called the holy hills. And the word holiness there just means they're separated. They're separated unto a purpose, unto God's purpose. And he puts his very presence there. And this is the thing that we should take from that, is that when we encounter God, 
in his holiness, we are changed by him. We become holy. The Old Testament speaks about that. Be ye holy, for I am holy. The New Testament, Peter uses that and says, you're God's people, be holy, he says, for I am holy. You are changed because of his holiness. And I am changed because of God's holiness. So I want you to just, that, that's the first, first point. If you're looking for a foundation amid all of the turns and twists of life, personal sickness, COVID crisis, deaths in the family, all the things that rattle our world, I hope that among all of those things that you have your life built upon the one and only foundation, which is the presence of God himself. He is the anchor. He is the anchor. He is the foundation. So repeat it after me, if you will. Repeat these words after me. My life, my life, is to be founded on God's presence. Say it again. My life is to be founded on God's presence. That's the very first thing that struck me from, from this first verse. And the second thing, as soon as we speak about the presence of God, we know that we must talk about his salvation because his presence without his salvation is, is terrifying. The definition of hell, in fact, is God's presence without his favor. The definition of heaven is God's presence with his favor. God is present in both places. He keeps them both sustained. He's there. But the definition of hell is that God's favor is not. In heaven, his favor is there. And so God, because he puts his presence in these holy hills, has to work out a plan of salvation so that his presence can be enjoyed. His presence no longer is something to be feared and to run away from, but now it's something to actually be embraced. Not something to say, get away, but literally that we run to it and find that our life, our very life, is that's the transformation that must take place. And he has to work it out on our behalf because the whole message of the Bible is that we can't do it ourselves. We can't get there. Okay, quick, quick history of the Old Testament. In these hills is where God works out his salvation. But I want to give you a quick history of the Old Testament just in three stepping stones. That's it, sorry. Okay, not the uh, 4,500 that it deserves, but the three stepping stones, just three little snapshots pictures, okay? 2,000 years ago, I mean, 4,000 years ago from us, but 2,000 years before Christ. Let's step back in time, okay? Abraham. God calls Abraham into covenant with himself and makes him the father of many nations. And he has a son, Isaac, and he tells Abraham one day to go to a hill and to take his son out, his only son, the son of his inheritance, the promised son that God gave him. This is all happening in Genesis 20, 22, by the way. You don't have to go there. But he is told to go to a specific place, and the place is what? Is Mount Moriah. Okay? Mount Moriah is one of the hills on this ridge in Jerusalem. Still there to this day, the Dome of the Rock is built on that very spot by the Muslims. Okay? 
when he goes out into that hill, he is going to sacrifice his son. There's a whole lot we can unpack about that, but we won't. This is just a snapshot. But this is where God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. And he says, Lord, where's the sacrifice? Uh, and um, he says, uh, we'll, we'll provide a sacrifice out there in the, in, the, in the wilderness. So as Abraham was about to take the knife down on, upon his son and to, alter, uh, to uh, sacrifice his son on the altar, the angel steadies his hand and says, Abraham, no, do not kill your son Isaac. I was only testing you to see if your heart was truly mine. And then he says, over in the thicket, look, there's a ram. He's caught by his horns. Go over and take that ram and sacrifice that animal in Isaac's place. Okay? Mount Moriah, snapshot number one. Fast forward a thousand years. So uh, 1000 BC, the time of King David and his son Solomon. This is when uh, God makes uh, a covenant with David and says, I'm going to make a, your throne will never, ever go out of existence. One of your descendants will be a king forever. We know that king, of course, is the son of David, Jesus Christ. But Solomon's, uh, David's son Solomon is the one who was allowed to build the temple. And the temple was the place that, re that basically replaced the traveling tabernacle. And it was the place where sacrifices were made day and night on behalf of the sins of the people. So God instituted a way for his people to have a covenant relationship with him. By not dying themselves, they would know his favor, but someone must take the wrath. And in this case, it was provisionally these animals that were a part of the Old Testament sacrificial system that God used to create this pathway to himself, where sins could be forgiven and his favor could be bestowed. Fast forward. Time of Christ. 0 B.C. or a few years after A.D., so 27, 8 A.D., Christ dying on the cross. By the way, that temple, that temple was built in the Temple Mount, of course, in these hills of Jerusalem. It's where God is acting out his salvation. Now we're up to the time of Christ when Jesus has now lived a perfect life, and he is God's very own son, and now he's hanging on the cross on a hill called Mount Calvary, one of these hills in this ridge of mountains. And it's there that he assumes on himself the sins of mankind, the sins of the world, your sins, my sins. So that those who place their faith in him can know the smile of God and the favor of God instead of God's wrath which they deserve. We're like Criminals on death row who've committed crimes against an infinitely holy God. And Jesus steps in our place to bear the wrath of God for us so that we can be free. Three snapshots, overview of the Old Testament. That's basically the storyline of the Old Testament. But in every case, the outworking of God's salvation is that he has a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice someone who steps into our place to secure the favor of God. This is the bedrock of life according to God. And so, 
I wonder if your life is founded on that salvation. Are you still trying to climb the hill? Are you still trying to get there some other way? Are you still trying to justify yourself? I'm better than so-and-so. I'm a pretty good person. I recycle. Isn't it funny how morality has changed from God's morality to these other things? I recycle. I drive an electric car. I don't hurt anybody too much or directly. But we all fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus is the one who steps in our place. And this is the bedrock of our lives. Come on in, guys. There's some seats right up here. Thanks for joining us. So I want you to repeat after me. This is, uh, I, have to, I see you guys are just much too quiet, so I have to have you say something. So here we go. My life is to be founded on God's salvation. My life is to be founded on God's salvation. Now, that's one of the first verse, <laughs> okay? But there really isn't too much to it. It's really verses 1, 2, and 3, and then kind of the rest of the thing kind of supplements those verses. So I want to move on to the next, the next little snapshot, the foundation of God, and that is found in the second verse, where it says, after it says, his foundation is in the holy hills because of his putting his presence there and working out his salvation. The Lord, it says in verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Not only does the Lord love Zion, because his presence is there, and God loves his own presence, he couldn't love anything else without losing his God. God's into himself. He can be into himself and get away with it because... Anything lesser would be sinful. So God's presence is there and his salvation is there. But get this, he doesn't want to keep that to himself, but he puts gates on his city. It makes sense if there's walls on the city to keep people out. God alone should dwell there. Sinful humanity should be out there. But God puts gates on his city to create this way of salvation so that people can come in and join his chosen people. So the third thing I want to kind of stress here is that our lives should be founded on God's deep love for his chosen people. Our lives should be founded on God's deep love for his chosen people. Now we know in the Old Testament that God's chosen people came from the line of Abraham. Okay? That's where the Jewish people started. I don't know if you realize this, but there's hundreds, thousands of years in chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis where there's not one Jewish person to be found. God's affection has always been on mankind as a whole. But he chose Abraham out of the nations to do something special in working out his salvation plan so that he could redeem all the nations and that his blessings could come to all the nations. In fact, Abraham's, Abram's name was changed from Abraham, Abram, Meaning, uh, what, prince? Uh, fatherly prince, basically. 
and it was changed to Abraham, meaning father of many nations. So that's, whole, that's Abraham's whole calling. So we're supposed to go back to the nations, and God accomplishes this in the city of God. Uh, but mainly there are Jewish people there worshiping God in his city, as the psalmist writes this. But notice what he says then, we're going to drop down, come back to verse 3, but verses 4 through 6 elaborate on verse 2, so I want to go there. There are other people that have always been in view in God's salvation besides the Jewish people. Even when the Jewish people left Egypt under Moses, under slavery, along with them, we're told in Exodus 12, that there was a mixed multitude of non-Jewish people that joined them, that also left Egypt. These were Egyptians who had enough of the plagues, had enough of Pharaoh, and enough of living in Egypt, and they saw God's working among the Jewish people, uh, these, these Hebrews, that they left along with them and traveled with them as a part of the company of Israel. That's in the Old Testament. And here we find in this uh, group of verses that many... Um, other people's groups are mentioned. So get this. Um, get the right one. What is it? 87. Here we go. Get this. God is speaking. The psalmist is talking, but he's saying that God is speaking. Among those who know me, says the Lord, I mention several people's groups. I mention Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. Let's just unpack that a little bit. The people, he's standing in Jerusalem, most of the people around there are Jewish people, covenant people, those who are relating to God through the sacrificial system. But they are all ethnically Jewish people. He looks over here as they're worshiping, and he says, you know, that one over there, he was born in Rahab, which is a different word for Egypt. That one came from Egypt. And now he's worshiping God in the city of God. Oh, look over here. This one came from Babylon. Can you believe that? Now, Egypt was where the Jews came out of in their slavery. They used to be oppressing the Jewish people, and now they're brothers before Almighty God worshiping him. Babylon, whether this was written before or after the exile, we don't know, but we think it was before. Babylon was a faraway nation that was a world power who was about to conquer Israel and take the Jewish people away into captivity. Yet there's somebody from Babylon who was traveling, who heard of the Jewish God, Yahweh, and submitted himself to that and was in Zion worshiping along with the people of God. Philistia, one of the arch enemies of Judah especially, of the people of Israel, but Judah in the south. And they were constantly fighting. This is of David and Goliath fame. Goliath was a Philistine. David was a Hebrew. There were Philistines. There were Philistines there. And Tyre, that was a city to the north. Tyre and Sidon were the cities in Phoenicia on the coast, uh, next to northern Israel. And they were known to be wealthy merchants at sea. They were Baal worshippers. Um, one of the queens, one of the most wicked queens in all of biblical history. Jezebel was the son of King Sidon, uh, the king of Sidon in, in Phoenicia. So here we have, here we have 
pagan backgrounds being represented, Baal worshippers, former Baal worshippers, guess what? They're all a part of the people of God and worshiping God in Zion. And lastly, with Cush, your translation might have the word Ethiopia. Basically, they only know where this place is in specific. It just means it's a faraway place kind of in the northern parts of Africa. Uh, a far and distant place. So here you have the psalmist talking about the city of God and the worship that's going on there in God's city and naming the enemies of Israel, former and present, and naming the most faraway countries that the word has gotten out to them. They've traveled here to the city of God and now are a part of the worship of God. It's amazing. What's even more amazing is that we come into the New Testament, this whole thing explodes. Even though it was mainly Jewish people doing their thing, speckled with the nations that came in. When Christ comes, the thing explodes. And he literally gathers in all the nations. And as we have seen, when, um, like when um, a group of Greeks, when Jesus was about to go to the cross, a group of Greeks came in and said, we want to see Jesus. The disciples ignored them. But Jesus begins talking to his disciples and says, when I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all to me. It doesn't mean every single person, but it means all the nations. All the nations are coming to me. There will be representatives there in my messianic assembly from all the nations of the earth. Acts chapter 10, Peter is told, Peter, take and eat this, these dietary laws in the Old Testament that pertain for a time to my people Israel. They don't pertain. I want you to know the Gentiles are being gathered in. I'm doing something different here. I'm, I'm blowing things apart. Romans 11, Paul tells us that the Gentiles are now grafted in to the one tree of God's salvation, united along with the Jewish promises. And we saw, and uh, Alec just finished up Ephesians, the first half of Ephesians last week, we've seen in Ephesians 3 how the Jews and the Gentiles are co-heirs. Get that, co-heirs. Members of the same body, not two different groups, one body. Co-participants in the Messiah's assembly, which we call the church. So God has always focused on the nations of the earth. Choosing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were to establish a community that God would put on display to the rest of the nations always with the desire and goal of saving all, of saving all the nations, some from every tribe, tongue, and people. So I want to know, who do you know who is outside of Christ who needs to be invited into the party? Who do you know? We sometimes, you know, can take all kinds of special measures to go out and do special events, to do evangelistic things, and those all have their place in their time. But most of us just rub shoulders with people. So I wonder if, is there somebody outside of the blessing of God's family? It doesn't matter if they're black or white, or if they're rich or poor, or if whatever their situation is. Who comes to mind if you rub shoulders with in your neighborhood or in your job, where we live and where we work, two main places that we spend our time? Would God lay somebody on your heart? 
right now. Just be aware. Start praying. See if you open some doors. And um, let's, let's be inclusive in the way that the gospel is inclusive. So repeat after me. My life, My life is, to be founded is to be founded on God's love, on God's love for his church. For his church. My life, My life is, to be founded is to be founded on God's love. For his church. I want to wrap this up in just a second, but I do want to say I feel like the text speaks to it, so I feel like I have an obligation to say something about this. We hear a lot today about multiculturalism in our society. We seek to be a diverse church, as diverse as God will bring us people. We want people from every background to be here and join us. We all come from different backgrounds, but we want it to be so diverse when we look out. We want to be welcoming. Everyone's a sinner who comes to the foot of the cross. But there is a difference between God's multiculturalism, kingdom multiculturalism, and secular popular multiculturalism. I hope you realize that. Okay? God is very multicultural, but in a different way than the world is multicultural. And it's very, very briefly, just food for thought. Take this in. Don't make it say more than what you think. Just listen to a little bit of the comparatives here. But biblical godly multiculturalism is God-focused. The popular secular variety is very humanistic, very man-focused. In the biblical multicultural, kingdom multiculturalism, God's kingdom is central. He rules and reigns. He calls the shots. In the secular multiculturalism, man calls the shots. We do things our way. And in fact, we hate God's kingdom. Kingdom multiculturalism is exclusive at first, it may seem, because no one can enter. We're all judged under the law. We're all kept out. We're all outsiders. But ultimately, it is inclusive, like we've seen. The secular variety is inclusive at first. All people, all cultures are equal. There is no sovereign law to be broken after all. We make up the laws as we go. But ultimately... It becomes exclusive because the tolerance turns into intolerance. The free-mindedness turns into groupthink. Kingdom multiculturalism is the result or the effect of salvation. We've all been humbled before the cross. We all have no rights to be there. But we are given rights. We're adopted as God's sons and elevated to be his heirs. But multiculturalism is used by the powers that be as the means to salvation, salvation in their mind, conflict, to bring about so-called equality. Kingdom multiculturalism ends in freedom under God. Humanistic multiculturalism ends in tyranny under man-made rules. And in the end, with kingdom multiculturalism, God gets the glory for what he has done. And in secular multiculturalism, popular multiculturalism, mankind gets the glory. We have built our new tower of Babel, a monument to ourselves. We've solved our problems. Two different spirits. I hope you're, you're, you're clued into that. And as you filter through, one of the biggest banes in our society is just the simple 
um, skill of identification. We equivocate everywhere. We use the same terms that have no idea what they mean from one group to the next. And this is one that I hope that you clued into. Multiculturalism is a very good thing if understood in the kingdom, but it can be a very tyrannical approach when it's fueled by humanistic motivation and desire. So there it is. I'll leave that sentence. That's my five-minute excursus on that. I hope that it is so much a part of this text that I thought I had an obligation under the Scripture's authority to say something about that, that you might be a discerning child of God. The last thing to say is really verse 3. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. When we experience the presence of God, when we come to God now and know his favor because of the salvation he has provided, when we worship him among his people and see them being transformed from being addicts to being lovers of God, from being idol worshipers to being worshipers of God, we see the transformation that makes in their lives in their families, in their um, descendants after them for generations to come. We can praise God and realize that we're in a glorious place. And it isn't the city itself that's glorious. Again, we're giving accolades to God himself who is glorious. And notice the very last verse. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Rejoice! Dance! Shout, this is the glorious kingdom, the glorious city that we're a part of. And this is the song of every true person who is born in Zion. We didn't get to that part. I'm out of time, so I can't go there. But the identities, by the way, of all these ethnic groups get changed. They're from there, from there, from there, from there. But God opens the books and says, this one was born in Zion. That's their ultimate and their truest identity that they are born in Zion. Secondarily, the stuff of being born in Zion was everything. Okay, so I forgot that. There it is. But this is, is this your song? Is this what you're dancing about when you wake up in the morning? Is this what you're singing about? And all your springs, all your source of refreshment, all of your, what you find to be attractive about life, all that you find to motivate your heart and your emotions and stir your, stir your your heart's desire, all that you're working for each day, all that you love to enjoy, is an anchor in the presence of God, his salvation, and with an affection for his people. I hope so. That's, I won't be singing some songs in a moment. Let me just pray and close this time. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be called by your name, to be those who are considered to be born in Zion. People destined to worship you and to know you. Thank you, Lord. We do it so poorly in how we relate to each other.